0: episode of Zero Brightness is brought to you by you. You can head to patreon.com slash zero brightness to sign to support the show directly and get bonus content multiple times per week. Thank you to everyone who supports the show, and I look forward to meeting more of you soon. Warning, this episode contains discussion of late game plot points for Dark Souls 2 and the ending of Solar Ash. I still think you should listen to it as knowing this information won't necessarily ruin your enjoyment of either game. Sequels are kind of tricky. The basic concept is inherently a cop-out. You know, you're returning to a previous idea rather than creating something new. And yet, it doesn't even provide a safety net from the pitfall of audience expectations. For a lot of artists, it's a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't kind of situation. And I actually kind of get it. As a general rule, I don't really like sequels. It takes something really special to justify a return to the creative well, which is why I get really bummed out when a group releases a fantastic sequel, one that really pushes the envelope and expands upon their previous work, and yet still gets shut out by their fan base. It just so happens that I recently played two games that fit that description perfectly. Two games that I feel are the best things that I've played all year. So yeah, I want to talk about them about what makes them great despite what you may have heard to the contrary. This is Zero Brightness, and today we're talking about Dark Souls 2 and Solar Ash, among other things. Let's do it. anything about Dark Souls 2, it's probably that it's bad. Despite there being a large fan community and more than a few op-eds defending the game, the conventional wisdom about DS2 is simple. It sucks. It's so easy to find this messaging out there in the ether that it truly feels like an overwhelming consensus. Even as someone like me who doesn't trust anything they read about front games online, I admit I kind of fell prey to this logic and I put off playing DS2 as long as I could. To wit, I even played 20 hours of Sekiro before I considered playing DS2, and I barely even get what a Sekiro is. So you can imagine my surprise when, upon actually playing Dark Souls 2, I found that I was really, really enjoying it. As someone who is still pretty critical of the original game, I found that it fixed a lot of my problems with that game in a way that sucked me in right from the start. So what makes DS2 so different from the other games in the series? What about it draws so much ire from a fanbase that hungrily laps up anything even tangentially related to Dark Souls? Well friends, that's a short question with a very long answer. If I was to do a little qualitative analysis of Soulsborne games and determine what factors differentiate the games from one another, I think I could break it down into five categories. Those being combat, progression, health system, level design, and world design. Let's start with combat, as it's a driving force of these games. The first thing you'll notice is that the combat in DS2 is much faster and more fluid than in DS1. We're no longer slow, syrupy, and heavy by default, and neither are our foes. We're also no longer a shield user by default, There's a marked shift away from slow, one-on-one fights and a newfound focus on crowd control. You might be thinking, hey, that sounds a lot like Bloodborne, and yeah, DS2 feels a lot like FromSoft doing a trial run of the sweeping design changes that they'd implement in Bloodborne. Honestly, it's one of the things I love about this game. What's so interesting about DS2 though is that it's still essentially a Dark Souls game. The weapons and tactics we use are still pretty much the same as DS1, and there are no huge shifts like the ones we see in Bloodborne. These changes are all held in place by the progression system in DS2, which features a few major changes from DS1. Big picture, DS2 is all about stats. The stats screen has ballooned to Dungeons and Dragons-like proportions, and the interactions between said stats and your character's loadout are even more complex and confusing. The most controversial change is the introduction of a new stat, ADP, short for Adaptability. Like any upgradable stat in a Dark Souls game, this one actually affects a number of attributes on your character sheet, but there's one in particular that functions very differently from DS1, AGL, which is short for Agility. Side note, this stat talk isn't going to go on forever, so bear with me here. This stat governs how many iframes you get when you do a dodge roll, essentially the amount of time during your dodge that enemy attacks can hurt you, and pretty drastically changes how dodging works in a Soulsborne game. In DS1, your dodge was entirely dependent on your equip load stat. If you wanted a faster roll, you needed to wear light armor and not carry any extraneous weapons. It's a cool idea, but it was also pretty punishing as the thresholds within that system were set very low. And the dodge roll in DS1 is just as slow and syrupy as the combat. The sacrifices to your character's defense that you were asked to make were pretty brutal. And I ended up just always using enchanted items to raise the amount of gear that I could carry and essentially cheese the system. In DS2, equip load is only part of the equation. Basically, there's a hard cap at 70%, and if you keep your equip load beneath that, you get a standard roll with varying amounts of stamina regeneration. The lower your equip load, the quicker you regenerate stamina. Beyond that, the quality of your dodge roll is all up to that AGL stat. So yeah, people didn't like having to level up their dodge roll, and honestly, you do need to power level it for the first few hours of the game because the starting roll sucks, but I love this idea. It seriously opens up your character build possibilities and also, as a baseline, allows you to carry way more gear without sacrificing your dodge roll. It makes this aspect of the game more complex, but also way more customizable. For example, I made a pretty standard melee character that could easily and quickly switch between sword and shield and a two-handed halberd, which massively opened up my combat and crowd control options. Not unlike, say, a slower and clunkier version of your sword turning into a whip in Bloodborne. Basically, it's shitty Bloodborne, okay? You're just gonna have to accept this. That comparison also extends to the health and humanity mechanics in DS2. While this game still uses the Estus system, it also gives you ample auxiliary health items to pad out your regenerating cache of flasks. This is also true of the humanity system, which now only requires one item to become human and access the expanded health bar and summoning features, rather than the one item per unique summon system that we saw in DS1. Once again, it basically works the same way that it does in Bloodborne, and it's a lot more forgiving of mistakes than the ironclad systems of DS1. It also adds some much needed stakes to the flat humanity system in DS1, which is pretty much only useful for summoning. Here, there's a Demon Souls like twist, where your health bar slowly loses bits of it as you die repeatedly, a condition that can only be remedied by restoring your humanity and somewhat mitigated by using the Ring of Binding. Side note please get the Ring of Binding. You can do it in the first 15 minutes of the game, and it's just a massive improvement to the play experience. Now, this also gets into some of the more controversial design choices in DS2, the kind of things where I feel the backlash is a little more justified, even as I disagree with it. Making things more item based in a Souls game is a bit of a gamble, as it can instill a kind of anxiety in the player that feels out of place in a series all about trying things over and over until you get it right. However, DS2 gives you a lot of lifelines and subtly encourages you to change your playstyle to accommodate these new systems. Probably the most heavy handed of these nudges is the complete lack of an offline mode in DS2. Yep, that's right, if you want to play DS2 offline, you're going to have to either do it in your launcher before you start the game, or literally yank out that ethernet cord. There's a very good reason for that though. Online play has been heavily rebalanced in DS2. PvP now employs level scaling and gates off its most intense and punishing encounters behind summon sigils that you have to purposefully interact with. Gone are the days of randomly getting invaded by some dude who wipes the floor with you every hour or so. Instead, DS2 encourages you to face invaders head on. It's actually built into the game, which also features a surprisingly high amount of scripted AI invaders. There are also way more AI summons encouraging you to engage with the online co-op aspect of the game. The message is clear, play the game online man, it's fine, it's actually really fun. Just do it, it works super well. Once you do, the game is way more enjoyable. Encounters are challenging rather than crushing. Unexpected invasions keep you on your toes and show the wide range of character builds available in the game. And, most importantly, you get a steady stream of humanity-granting items that will ensure you never have to farm rats again. With God as my witness, we will never farm rats again. To me, these changes all read as quality of life improvements over the systems in DS1, which is also how I feel about the level design in DS2. Here, we get our first glimpses at the future of the series. Wide open spaces, bonfire warping from the start of the game, areas that connect and intertwine but can be traversed quickly when needed, etc, etc, etc. The areas in DS2 all support the new mechanical changes in a way that is masterful, with a focus on massive scale. Larger groups of enemies are placed within impressively huge areas, The expanded game world is filled to the brim with shortcuts and crucial fast travel opportunities. DS2 is a huge game that covers a lot of territory. It really feels like you're on a journey, exploring all the strange, forgotten corners of a crumbling fantasy world. And it achieves this without ever wasting your time with grueling backtracking. Which is not to say that the game isn't grueling. It's Dark Souls, man. It's grueling as fuck. But even this gets a crucial tweak. Enemy respawns are no longer infinite in Dark Souls 2. In every other game in this style, enemies respawn whenever you rest at a checkpoint. Initially, DS2 seems to uphold this tradition, until you really get stuck in an area for the first time and notice that something weird is going on. As you kill enemies over and over, you start to notice that some of them stop spawning. The first time I noticed this, I was honestly overjoyed. It sounds like a small thing, but it really motivated me in some of the harder parts of this game. The fact that I wasn't just being rewarded for my mastery and skill, but also for my tenacity is fucking awesome. Life is short, time is precious, and I appreciate the fuck out of Dark Souls 2 for recognizing this. That's kind of the bottom line of the mechanical talk about Dark Souls 2. It respects your time. It gives you a ton of different ways to play and a number of different, viable approaches to any problem that you encounter. I also love the difficulty balancing in this game. It reminds me a lot of Symphony of the Night, where a super punishing boss or area would be followed up by a more chill stretch of the game. That smooth push and pull is my ideal difficulty balance. And such a far cry from the procession of impossible tasks that the most unforgiving Soulsborne games can become. And yes, if you can't tell, I just did the monkey boss in Sekiro. Why does it happen three times? We didn't need the third one. The first two were bad enough. Jeez. I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I've been kind of using FromSoft games as an escape from reality. I really enjoy throwing myself into these games because they're so hard and unforgiving. And yet, if the balance gets skewed, I can find myself totally thrown from the experience and back into real life. And to be honest, real life sucks. Things have been pretty shitty lately. I mean, there's the stuff we're all dealing with, you know, the pandemic, financial uncertainty, the impending collapse of society, and that stuff has been weighing on me really heavily, in addition to some personal health stuff. I haven't really talked about this at all, and I kind of don't want to, but I also feel like I need to put it out there, um, maybe to justify some things that are going to happen in the next few months, in terms of content I want to make, or things I want to try um, and just to let you guys know where my head is at uh, when I make those decisions. So basically a couple months ago, uh, I found out that I have holes in my retinas and uh, if I don't get them treated, there's a chance that I could go blind. So since I found that out uh, once a month, I've been getting very painful laser surgeries in my eyes in order to treat the problem. And yeah, the side effects of those surgeries are uh, pretty horrible, you know, Um, intense pain, headaches, uh, nausea, inability to focus your eyes. And, you know, following the surgeries, you have to monitor for these side effects and make sure that you're not suffering from a retinal tear or retinal detachment. So, you know, there's a lot of stress and anxiety that comes with that especially for me because, um, so I don't know if I've ever even mentioned this, but like I have horrible vision. Uh, I have really, really awful vision. Uh, like if you guys ever see me in real life or see a picture of me, the first thing a lot of people think is like, man, that dude's wearing fucking Coke bottle glasses. Um, especially for years because like I had these really cheap shitty glasses for like the last 10 years. I just got new ones. Um, uh, yeah. So I have this horrible eyes and they're a fucking mess And that kind of happened to me really fast when I was a kid, like I went from having perfect vision to being almost legally blind within a span of maybe like three years. It was super horrifying and it basically left me with this lingering fear for the rest of my life that I was going to go blind. So, you know, having to actually get this treatment as well as monitor my eyes for signs and symptoms of further complications that could actually lead to me going blind has been really, really stressful and it really, really sucks. I mean, going through this treatment has been really intense. There's times when it's been kind of debilitating, and the stress of making arrangements to receive and pay for these treatments has been pretty horrible. Not to say that it's only happening to me. The stress of going through medical treatment at this time is something that a lot of people, including some friends of mine, are currently experiencing. When you're in the middle of it, it feels like some stupid and horrible refraction of all the problems that we're experiencing in America, and it's just making life shittier. I mean the fact that we're still having to contend with this broken awful healthcare system while in the middle of a pandemic that is raging because people just won't make good choices and accepting personal responsibility is it's mind-bending in the worst kind of way as for my situation i'm actually almost done with my treatments for now but it's just kind of changed how i feel about certain things it's Changed how I approach certain activities and things that I enjoy, you know? It's really upended my life in some ways that I expected and some ways that have really surprised me, you know? And yeah, I don't know. I guess in the middle of this, I have just been using certain things that I enjoy as kind of a crutch. And it turns out that Dark Souls 2 is one of those things. I mean, it turns out these... Soulsborn games in general have become one of those things like i don't know i think we've made a lot of jokes on the show about me like becoming this weird obsessive of or evangelist for these Soulsborn games over the last year and that has happened and like i don't know maybe it is the sign of some sort of shift in my mentality or some sort of psychotic break or something i don't know but i do know that like having something like dark souls 2 to really throw myself into something that's punishing and challenging and that makes you work while you're doing something for fun has actually you know given me a lot emotionally it's actually helped me deal with some of the shit i've been dealing with and when i approached this game thinking that it was going to suck And finding that it's actually amazing and that it contains multitudes within its, you know, story and thematics, which I'm about to talk about in a second. I don't know. It was both awesome and it was annoying because so many people say this game sucks and it's horrible and it's not. It's amazing. Everyone who says it sucks. Y'all are wrong for that. I'm about to keep telling you why. So yeah, uh, stats and numbers are cool and all, but FromSoft games aren't all mechanics and data. A huge part of the experience is exploring a strangely beautiful world, and the world of DS2 is my favorite one yet. At first glance, it seems to be a lot like Dark Souls, an 80s-inspired, low-fantasy world on the brink of collapse, once verdant landscape now blighted by dark magic and disease, and covered by a gothic gloom that is nothing short of oppressive. The big change in DS2, though, is a huge infusion of color and variety. It's right there in the game's home base of Majula, a seaside village lit by perpetual dawn and surrounded by a golden sea that twinkles under a Sega blue sky. Your first look at Majula is honestly shocking, and that shock is a trick that the game pulls over and over. You might emerge from a twilight forest into a sunny floating castle, or from a pitch black cave into a burning fortress. You'll go deeper and deeper into underground caverns until the black rock is lit by giant lakes or magical neon light. It's absolutely gorgeous, and I loved exploring every part of Dark Souls 2. And yet, the thing that really took me by surprise in this game was the story. Yes, DS2 has a story, and it's incredible. It's also very, very subtle, although there are hints and clues throughout that something is different about this one. It starts right at the beginning, with an opening cutscene that is surprisingly dark and horrifying. A psychedelic nightmare of personal and political loss, narrated by a witch. It's a deeply weird and unsettling intro that calls forward to the game's main theme. One day, you will stand before its decrepit gate without really knowing why before dropping us into an otherworldly forest. It's not what I expected, I'll say that much. From there, things proceed as you would expect. You meet a mysterious woman who serves as your quest guide, and she urges you to get out of there and kill shit. Seek more and larger souls. That's explicitly what she tells you to do. So you do. Moving through the world and slowly conquering it as you go. And yet... There's something even more vague about this game's quest when compared to the rest of the series. You move through it without really knowing why. Eventually, your quest takes on the same shape as your journey in DS1. Your quest giver basically says, Hey, thanks for killing all those guys, but if you really want to get shit done, you're going to need to kill these four really big guys and then find the king. So you do. You might be a little suspicious at this point, but you might also be thinking, hey, it's a sequel, what do you expect? And that's what makes the next bit of this game so brilliant. It comes out of nowhere, and somehow delivers my favorite moment in any FromSoft game, one that isn't a boss fight, or a scenic overlook, or a challenging encounter. It's also not a cutscene, It's something else entirely, an interactive piece of storytelling that is brutal and breathtaking in equal measure. During our quest to destroy the game's final group of big bads, we eventually make our way to the center of a remote crypt. Having heard of this place, we know that we are approaching the inner sanctum where King Vendrick resides. We don't know much about him, but we know that something has gone horribly wrong, and we need to find him in order to set things right. This being a Dark Souls game, we expect to find him and kill him. But that's not what happens. Upon entering his keep, we actually fight his protector, a loyal knight. It's a surprise, but that's also not totally unheard of. Personally, I assume there was just going to be another brutal double boss fight. I mean, it's Dark Souls after all. You know, prepare to die, etc, etc. Beyond that fight, however, we find something else entirely. It's an empty room with a single figure, a huge, desiccated giant, mindlessly pacing its edges in endless circles. It doesn't attack us, it won't speak to us, it just paces. At the head of the room is a discarded pile of armor, a memory of past glories, and in its center is the item we've been seeking. It calls to us with an eerie harmonized tone that grates against the quiet, mournful music playing in the background. This is the climax of Dark Souls 2. The reveal of King Vendrick as an empty shell driven mad by his quest for power, and the realization that we are on the very same quest. This one single moment recontextualizes the entire game. Our quest hasn't been some vague conquest of a foreign land, it's been a campaign designed by a higher power, with our player character meant as a sacrifice. We were only given vague directions because if we knew what we were really meant to do, we wouldn't have done it. If we knew that we were just another soul to be slaughtered, we wouldn't have participated in all this killing, in an endless cycle of death and violence. It's fucking heavy. So much so that you almost don't even need to see the game's final cutscene to know where it's going. That one moment tells you everything you need to know. It's also an incredible piece of subversion. It completely reframes the purpose and meaning of the player's journey in a way that makes the original game look like a simple fantasy tale in comparison. It makes you think and reconsider everything you've done up to this point not just in this game but throughout the entire series dark souls games are never really about motivation right your player character doesn't have a strong personality there isn't a strong driving force your character is kind of always presented as a small pawn in a much larger cosmic game We don't know why we're doing all of this. We don't know why we're seeking the things that we're seeking. I think in Dark Souls, it's more portrayed as kind of a mysterious, inscrutable quest. But in this game, it's actually made very, very explicit what we're doing. And it's mined for a very specific kind of existential horror, which makes sense. I mean, when you think about the fact that your character is just moving through this fantasy world, destroying everything in their path, it's fucked up. And the consequences of it can't be beautiful, uplifting, or heroic. By definition, the only outcome can be horror. Like I say, it's a great piece of subversion, but... I think a big reason why this particular choice blew me away is that it's very difficult to pull off this kind of thematic rug pull in a video game. Up to that point, the most sincere attempt at this before DS2 was probably Metal Gear Solid 2, which I'd now like to talk about for a not insignificant amount of time. I have extremely conflicted feelings about Metal Gear Solid 2, As an idea or a concept, it's really really good, but as a gameplay experience and a complete work of art, I think it's kind of horrible. The basic concept here is that the game is meant to be a weird, disjointed riff on the original Metal Gear Solid that then uses the similarities between the two games as a springboard into a psychedelic meta-commentary on the MGS series as a whole. There are two important inspirations behind this choice. The first being series creator Hideo Kojima's frustration with the Metal Gear series, and the second being Hideyako Anno's anime film, The End of Evangelion. To that first point, Kojima famously wanted to end Metal Gear at many points throughout the series, but, as they say, Just when I thought I was out, it pulled me back in. His disdain for the series ended up being a perverse kind of fuel pushing him and his team to explore new ideas and try wilder things with each entry. With MGS2, they decided to try and express the nihilistic frustration that comes with attempting to please an audience you don't understand by making a type of art that you've come to resent. For guidance, they turned to the Bible of nihilistic frustration that comes with attempting to please an audience you don't understand by making a type of art that you've come to resent, the end of Evangelion. End of Eva is, of course, the feature film that serves as the quote-unquote official ending to the anime series Neon Genesis Evangelion. It was basically commissioned by fan demand after they deemed the original, highly impressionistic ending to the show quote-unquote unsatisfying, an opinion that is objectively wrong. Anno's response, however, was anything but audience-friendly. While the film does open with about an hour of more traditional anime film content, its second half descends into a highly philosophical multimedia presentation that spends as much time commenting on the events of the series as it does examining the mental state of its creators. It's both a really good film and also a massive troll of anyone who thought the ending of the show was too abstract and artsy. It really hammered home Anno's cruel thesis that anime and the otaku lifestyle was a kind of cultural cancer that had rotted an entire generation to its very core. Metal Gear Solid 2 cribs a lot from the end of Evangelion. The multimedia bits, the meta-commentary, some very specific philosophical points, etc. It's honestly kind of fascinating to see it mix these bits and pieces of Anno's work with the series' expected wheelhouse of paranoid conspiracy theory nonsense. There are some genuinely profound moments mixed into the word salad soup that is the game's script. But where MGS2 really fails, in my opinion, is that it doesn't create a fun and compelling game world to contain these strange and beautiful moments. The earlier parts of the game, which are meant to be a sort of twisted retread of the original Metal Gear Solid, are boring, in both an aesthetic and a gameplay sense. It's an airless and antiseptic vision of the future that is meant as a long con setting you up for those later moments of intense psychedelia and introspection. But the balance is off. Those moments are great, if not a bit depressingly derivative, but they don't justify the earlier bits which only inspire boredom and frustration. Dark Souls 2, in my opinion, does the same thing in a way that is so much more elegant and inspired. It is at the same time an evolution of the series' core gameplay that is obsessively focused on mechanics, as well as a massive subversion of the series' core themes and motivations. The apocalyptic nihilism of reimagining the player character in a Soulsborne game as a knave questing towards being a mad king of a ruined land is staggering, and the narrative techniques used in DS2 have had a tremendous influence on the rest of the series. From DS3's apocalyptic portrayal of the world of Lordran, to Sekiro's presentation of a man betrayed by his family and friends, we see those same storytelling tactics employed in DS2 paying dividends throughout the rest of FromSoft's modern works. It's subtle and gorgeous without pulling from the core gameplay. It is, flat out, an achievement. So why do people hate this game? Well, obviously I'm biased, but my best guess is that people weren't ready for Dark Souls 2. And in truth, the game may not have been ready for itself. The original release was reportedly a bit of a mess, and the game didn't really come into its own until the scholars of the first Sin re-release, itself a slightly remixed remaster that leans into a lot of the peculiarities that made DS2 such a fraught topic amongst FromSoft fans in the first place. At that time, fans hadn't really figured out that each FromSoft game demands a completely different playstyle and a lot of folks went into DS2 expecting just more DS1. When they didn't get that and were instead presented with a truly weird and subversive take on the Dark Souls style, they rebelled and branded the game with a figurative scarlet letter, one that it wears to this day. Had DS2 had a totally different title and marketing scheme, it may have done better, and its legacy might have been something quite different from the tarnished gold banner that it quietly waves to this very day. Or maybe, if people had really given it a chance to say what it wanted to say, in the way that it wanted to say it, they would have liked what they heard. Maybe I'm projecting here, I honestly don't really know. I feel kinda bad comparing Solar Ash to Dark Souls 2, and yet, I feel that the comparison is pretty apt. Not just because the response to Solar Ash has been almost shockingly muted, but also based on my own experience with the game. Trying it for the first time was a weird, disconcerting experience that made me question if I really wanted to see it through. It made me question the choices made by the devs and wonder if this one just wasn't for me. Those are some pretty uncomfortable questions when you consider that Solar Ash is the new game from developer Heart Machine and, essentially, a spiritual successor to my favorite game of the last decade, Hyper Light Drifter. Now, while I'm sure some people might think it a bit of a stretch to call this game a sequel or successor to Hyper Light, it really is in all-but-name. It borrows so many of that game's quirks that I can't view it as anything but a follow-up. The visual style, the music, the atmosphere, and even some of its larger themes are all straight out of the Hyper Light Drifter playbook albeit completely reimagined in a way that is initially confusing, and, later, stunning. Let's start with the confusion, though. Solar Ash is probably not the game that you were expecting Heart Machine to make. At its core, it's a puzzle platformer game set within an open-ended, action-adventure world, and cribbing a lot of its basic mechanics from, wait for it, racing games. The easy pitch for Solar Ash is that it's a 21st century Dreamcast game, awash in gameplay ideas from games like Jet Set Radio and Sonic Adventure, but rendered with a painstaking amount of care and attention to detail. Where those games are kind of loose and slapdash, Solar Ash is tight and purposeful, even if it doesn't initially seem that way. If there's one major criticism I can level at Solar Ash, it's this. The intro kind of sucks. It's weird and confusing in a way that's less like Dark Souls and more like a bad Dreamcast game. It really fails to communicate to the player how the game should be played, or what is expected of the player. So let me try to break it down for you. In Solar Ash, you play as a Void Runner, a kind of sci-fi futurist ninja who can glide as if on rollerblades. Your task is to explore areas which are structured like miniature open worlds, and complete challenges in order to unlock an encounter with a boss, a hulking giant that always looms large over the area. While the game does have some traditional movement and even combat, the bulk of these challenges are completed using the game's skating-style mechanics. At any time, the player can hold L2 to start skating and, while in motion, use other buttons to boost, slow down time, or grapple onto certain points in the environment. You'll use these abilities not only to move through the world with a thrilling sense of grace and fluidity, but also to complete small, puzzling obstacle courses on your way to the aforementioned boss encounters. The boss encounters themselves play out as beefed up versions of those obstacle courses, tasking the player with surviving impossibly long chains of wild jumps, sheer drops, and leaps of faith. The choice is seriously shocking at first. And, just like a Soulsborne game, if you try to play it like the last one, you will die. In my first hour or so with Solar Ash, I kept trying to play it like a 3D Zelda game, and I was continually disappointed with the floaty controls and weird movement style. It wasn't until around the second world that everything clicked for me, and I realized you're not supposed to walk through the world of Solar Ash, you're supposed to glide. Once you realize you can always be skating, jumping, and grappling through the game world at top speed, the game becomes a joyous experience. Once you really embrace the weirder aspects of the game's controls, you realize that there are actually a ton of subtle combinations of those moves that make your character even more agile and graceful. By the third boss I was flying through the game world at top speed and having the time of my life. We have to talk about that game world though. Solar Ash takes place in a cosmic void. A psychedelic assemblage of ruined worlds that have been sucked into a vacuum and preserved as mostly lifeless ruins. Despite that depressing description, the game's aesthetic leans even further into Hyperlight's neon fantasy look, to present the player with a startlingly bright world of caustic pink seas, neon blue skies, and blazing orange horizons. The aesthetic psychedelia is mirrored in the game's level design where gravity is liable to flip at any moment, and huge, area-linking rails provide physics-defying transit between challenges. It's truly awe-inspiring, like if you designed a whole game around that one moment in Arrival where they first ascend into the alien spacecraft, which is like, you know, the best moment in sci-fi film history, probably. We agree on that, I'm sure. There's a unity of purpose here, Everything working in harmony to give the player a certain feeling. A feeling that I'm now going to do us all a huge favor and stop trying to describe in words. I'll say this, if any of this sounds remotely cool to you, please make arrangements to play Solar Ash immediately. The mechanical appeal, however, isn't the only slow burn in Solar Ash as the game's story also takes quite a bit of time before blooming into something awe-inspiring. The setup of Solar Ash finds the game's protagonist entering the void in order to save their home planet from being pulled into its destructive embrace. We're told that we need to explore each area, find any of our surviving teammates, and re-establish the link between the void and our planet's computer system, as embodied by our AI pal Cid, so that we can start a huge device in the center of the Void and save the universe, I guess? As we explore the game's world, however, things take a very dark turn. It seems that none of our fellow void runners survived, taken by the hostile environment or madness, and any surviving inhabitants of the Void are strange and twisted versions of their previous selves. Even worse, as we discover caches containing the mission logs of our missing comrades, we slowly realize that our central quest might not only be a wild goose chase, it might end up destroying the known universe rather than saving it. This idea is reinforced by repeated encounters with Echo, a godlike figure who chides and discourages us, going as far as destroying one of our health units after each boss and forcing us to earn it back. Something is really wrong with the world of Solar Ash, and the more we explore it, the more we uncover the rot concealed behind those Sega blue skies and start to wonder if we're not on a suicide mission into a dead world. The pacing and placement of these story reveals is so good that even if you're combing each area for clues and methodically completing everything like I did, the final twist will still hit you like a ton of bricks. Echo is you. You're not a hero embarking on a quest to save your planet, you're a ghost trapped in a loop, replaying past events over and over and over. Your planet is already destroyed, and the godlike Echo is just your essential self trying to get you to break the cycle. If you finally heed her warning and decide to stop reliving the past, you kick off the game's true ending sequence, a massive boss battle with yourself. Despite how dark that may sound, the writing and presentation of this sequence frames it as a triumph of hope. When you overcome your own grief, self-hatred, and doubt, you find your character standing at the edge of the void, surveying the ruined world and realizing that this strange, imperfect place is home now. It's not what you hoped for, it's not what you planned for, but it's what you've got. And you don't have much of a choice but to make the best of it. It's an ending not of glory, but of ragged hope. A startlingly real subversion of a subversion. A portrayal of what real people do when things end badly or go sideways. It's easy to get wrapped up in the seductive doom and gloom of things like Dark Souls or Evangelion, to lay on the floor and picture the tomb closing on the bearer of the curse, or Shinji collapsed on death's shore, but it's also important to remember that there's beauty in life and nobility in perseverance. We keep on keeping on, even when it's hard and even when it sucks. We live and we keep going when we can. This year has been a bit of a nightmare. I don't have a lot of irrational fears, but 2021 decided to shove them all in my face. The fear of going blind an aversion to illness the nagging doubt that I've failed everyone and everything. And while I appreciate the way that Dark Souls 2 let me wallow in those fears and negative emotions, I also feel grateful that Solar Ash was there with a message of hope. Because right now, I think we all just need a little hope. A reassurance, however small, that on the other side of life's next shitstorm is the promise of a vast and clear Sega Blue Sky.